Cannabis Business Minds, we train and mentor professionals, entrepreneurs, and aspiring entrepreneurs on how to confidently find their place in the legal cannabis and hemp industries. Come on and join us at CannabisBusinessMinds.com. You know, I was telling Maddie, I thought the first time we were chatting, we should have hit record because you were just giving out so many gems. And I was like, this is, this is what people like need to hear, need to understand. So I'm glad that we can, you know, kind of have the conversation again right now. Um, and thank you for being on. I'm loving the hair. I'm loving, I'm loving the vibe right now. How, how is life? It's snowing. Oh, <laughs> so it's not like it is where you are, but it's nice. Nice, nice. So I'm curious, how has, and then we can kind of dive into your history, but like, how has it been going since we last chatted? I know that there have been some things that have been happening in the cannabis space. Like what's been going on? Well, I think in Massachusetts, it's been an interesting time because we are now seeing um, entities closing, which is not something I think anyone ever talks about or really prepares for, right? So there was this Mm. big, rush of energy and there's this big push to open up all these all these businesses and make sure that social equity applicants are getting through and everybody's opening and you know making sure the MSOs sort of don't take over the, the industry and at the same time I don't ever remember having a conversation of what if someone closes like what if someone can't do this and I think what happens is we were really just excited to to start you know, writing the regulations and the rules, getting people open. If you looked on LinkedIn or social media, people are excited about finally having the opportunity to do delivery or, you know, to come in and own their little cultivation spot. And now I think we're seeing, you know, this is what, so it was five and a half years in, in Massachusetts. We've had some entities that have closed and then that sort of changes the dynamic of, okay, do things need to change from the state level? Are things happening operationally that, you know, maybe they couldn't make it. Um, But I always had this, this adage that if you closed within three years, we did something wrong, but nobody thinks about five and 10 years. So it's, it's been really, it's an interesting twist and the new commissioners here are certainly going to have to contemplate that when they're doing their rule changes. Wow. That is so true because you hear about like the average business, if you're not going to go if you're not going to do well, we'll close in five years. So that always is that benchmark for me. But then you have, you're right. You have to consider, okay, well, the taxes, but I know in Massachusetts, they're not as crazy as in some other states, the taxes, the compliance, just the, the, the lack of a traditional true market in terms of supply and demand, because it's still kind of this brand new ecosystem. So that is so interesting. And it's, it's funny because our first conversation, you were telling me like your whole transition when you found out that you got the job of commissioner and then kind of the roadmap of like how you actually started to go do it. And it makes sense to me that why would you think of the worst case scenario right at the yeah. beginning? But in hindsight, do you think you it could have been done differently? Well, I think part of it was one, we didn't have the resources of the time. So when I told you there were five commissioners in five cubicles, we did not get thrown into our tobacco or alcohol board. Like we didn't have a staff that was already in place to support us. I I remember looking at the phone on my desk and saying to one of the commissioners, do we even know who answers this? Like who answers our phone? Is it us? And cause it's never, it's never rung before. Like the thing doesn't ring. So, um, and I remember, you know, 
it, it was sort of a, a flurry of events. I mean, you have the criticism that's taking us too long. You had the criticisms of who we were. People didn't like necessarily our backgrounds. Um, you know, we had a lot of things going on at the same time that you were just like, all right, fine, we're going to dig into this. Oh, by the way, we have until December. Now I get appointed September 1st. We have till December to finish this. And we can't talk to each other because, you know, and, and I don't think what a lot of the general public knows is that we have open meeting laws. We have rules that we have ethics. We have all these things that we have to um, pay attention to as, as state employees. We wanted to get it right. We did not want to be seen as violating any of those rules. And so that made it that much more difficult. Everything we did was in real time. We had eight hour public meetings just to be able to have conversations. Um, and that's when it was, okay, how are we going to open? How are we going to have compliance? How are we going to have this? You get, you have to wait to make sure that the, the end product going out matches the product that came in. I mean, it was so technical that I don't think any of us thought, all right, this thing's going to close. Something's going to close. Like, no, why would it? <laughs> because the whole rush is, all right, this is how we're going to do this. Um, this is going to be amazing. This is how it's going to work, right? Yeah. And not. And in 2017, about- we were still one of the early states. We only had, I think, about seven or six states ahead of us that had been doing this. So we didn't have a lot to really look to to say, have they closed yet? Like, what's happened? Um, I think our biggest concern was what what to do with the islands. Like, what to do with Massachusetts Vineyard and Nantucket. How do we get the product? You can't take it on the water. You can't take it in the air. Those are federally, you know, regulated spaces. That was our biggest concern is how do people on the islands get to participate as well? So it was an interesting time. Oh, my God. Well, and I think about it. So I always think from business, you have so many different stakeholders, but from government, you also have so many different stakeholders. Talk to us about all the different stakeholders that, you know, when you got into that role, you started to realize that you had? Well, I think first and foremost, the legislature was a big um, stakeholder because the intent of the law, right? So while the ballot question passed, and and a lot of people forget I was in the Senate when we did the the bill. And so we then took what passed and we kind of revamped it to make it our own. And so um, the legislature's intent was a big deal and, and what that looked like. Then we had to figure out what to do with the Department of Revenue because we also had to collect taxes and the taxes were going to go into, you know, the general fund or what we call the general appropriation. Plus, we had people who had been so, so involved in the ballot question, right? They mm-hmm. wanted a seat at the table, but there was no table. Like it was an it was an imaginary table, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, and luckily, Commissioner Title, she was there because she was a big part of the movement. And so we sort of had a voice through her and understanding what people were looking for. But then at the same time, each of us coming from where we came from, you know, I came from the public health world. There was no way I wasn't going to have tight regulations on potency for edibles or, you know, prevention of diversion or the whole the whole gamut. And so we had to sort of take where we came from and then utilize all of these stakeholders. And people really wanted to have conversations with us. Um, And at one point, I used to say, if you can't come with constructive criticism and then suggestions, then we're not having this fight because it would turn into an argument. Uh, And people would say to me, well, if you're not with us, you're against us. And it's like, but I'm here. Like, you have to do this. (laughs) Um, The only person that can remove me is the governor. So I think it was really, um, it was really interesting because the one thing I did learn 
and it's always funny because people don't realize that I have a background in mental health. Like I have a master's in mental health. This thing is, this issue of cannabis legalization is so emotional for people. It has either affected their lives. It, it didn't affect their lives or something had happened that they just get really emotional about it. And I think I took that into consideration, into consideration saying, okay, I get it. Like, I really get it. Like, this is something for you that means so much more than to other people. Um, and it was a hard balance because our ballot question passed 53, 47. Like it, it, there wasn't a large percentage difference. Yeah, and compared close. to other states, is that normal? Or like, is that like, what is the, in other no, states? No, I think what happens is that, you know, you have states now who are saying like, let's legalize, but let's do it to the legislature. When you have mm. ballot questions or ballot initiatives, um, or sometimes they call it petition initiatives, it's the messaging. And what I heard afterwards was that people didn't know what they were voting for. They were, it was a 17 page question, which is hard. You know, in Massachusetts, we get this book. It's like this thick. You have all the questions that are in there that are going to be on your ballot. And it's technical. I mean, it's really technical. Instead of just saying, going to open cannabis businesses, we're going to legalize adult use. And this is what it's going to look like. I had some people in the Berkshire say to me, I thought the kid wouldn't get arrested. And I was Uh like, okay, that's not even close to what you voted for. But that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, God, I think that's like the hard part where so many of our listeners are on the opposite side where you as a regulator or regulation seems so distant and so far off and so kind of confusing where in the end, it's like, and this is why I'm glad that you're also on the podcast is like it, I want to bring light to like, this is a work in progress. Like everybody is trying as much as they possibly can given the I don't want to say constraints, but given the framework that's available. And I just. I think the hardest part is that we don't have the benefit and people will will criticize me saying this. We don't have the benefit of federal supports. So we don't have sort of a best practice that's been determined. We don't have federal supports when it comes to the FDA. We don't have the things that you would normally look to. And one of the, the biggest things that used to make me laugh was, well, let's regulate it like alcohol. Okay. Well, we don't have the support systems that alcohol does. So from there, no. And by the way, we shouldn't be regulating it like alcohol because it's not alcohol. And if you wanted, and I constantly hear, but this is better than someone drinking. Well, then we're not going to do that. We're going to look at it for what it is and we're going to continue to move on. Let's have the difficult conversation of it's intoxicating, whether you like to admit it or not. Cannabis is intoxicating. You cannot control the level of intoxication like you can with alcohol. You can have three sips of wine and walk out the door. You're not going to be able to eat that portion of an edible and then function halfway later. You know, it's just, it's a different substance. So let's, let's look at it for what it is and let's make it its own. But it would be nice if the feds could help us with that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want, there's two points. So when you talk about, we don't have the same resources from the federal government as alcohol. What does that mean? So somebody can really understand that. We don't have money for research. There's no money. You know, the think tanks want to be part of this. Colleges want to be part of this. Um, Yes, the DEA has given out, you know, those, those grants or the awards and, you know, there is a place is growing, but it's always, it's been criticized since the, since the get-go. First of all, it took too long. Second of all, what are we getting out of it? Um, There's an abundance of research that's going on and you have to really look at who's funding that, right? Is it, is it the anti, 
legalization movement? Is it the pro-legalization movement? Uh, we really need to start to have that third party little research development um, and have that as a piece of it. Also, you know, the ingredients that are in it. We were we were criticized in Massachusetts for um, quarantining vapes. Mm-hmm. We all know that things that come from other countries may not have the safety levels that we want here in the United States. Um, I can remember being in the House of Representatives and I had a bill that would limit the the jewelry that came into the country because the lead was so high, the levels of lead that were so high. This is no different. Like you have to take a look at what people are putting into their bodies, right? So, and I think that those conversations don't happen on the general stage. It's either legalized or don't. And so for people like me who get put into positions of, you know, regulating and and making sure that the rules are there, we have to have those difficult conversations. We have to look at what we know to be systemic government entities and see how it relates to what we're doing. This is not going to be a state by state thing forever. Right. And so mm-hmm. hopefully, and we used to joke about this, hopefully every state wrote the best regs and the government and the feds are going to say, take care of it yourselves. We'll regulate it from a higher level, but we'll let you all do what you need to do. Right. We don't want to upend an entire industry. Um, because it's taken so long for Washington to do something. Yeah, well, and I think that Washington is such an interesting, like, oh, Washington as in the capital, and who knows how long that would be. It seems like that could be quite some time, and, you know, people's livelihoods and and states' budgets and all of that are are impacted until kind of Washington does figure something out. But actually, when I, I heard Washington, I thought of the state, and I was like, well, that is a perfect example of a state that didn't figure it out well, has had to rewrite so many different things, and then is also just pushing a lot. Um, I want to go back to, because you were, your background before, you know, being part of cannabis regulation was public health. And our first conversation, you thought, well, I'm not right. You said something that really stuck and it was like, who you're writing the regulations for in terms of, and, you know, we had this conversation of somebody who's been using cannabis for a very long time versus somebody who's never used it. Talk to us a little bit about that of how your thought process and how probably most public health entities thought process is when it comes to this? Well, I think it was difficult. I think anyone in public health um, probably, uh, and and I'm not saying everyone, but a majority probably opposed the question in Massachusetts. And I can see that across the country, they're opposing legislative initiatives or they're they're, um, they're going against the, the ballot questions. And I think it's because you don't know. Like, we don't know what the public health effects are. We don't know what the health effects are of this. You know, people say that the most used method is is smoking. Okay, well, we know smoking in general isn't good for you. Is it the the tobacco that's not good for you? Is it the inhalation that's not good for you? And so from a public health perspective, there's a lot of cynicism around legalization of a substance that's intoxicating. And so for me, you know, we we always joke um, at VS that, uh, I didn't like the question. And so because I was so involved in the opiate crisis and I was so involved in, in the heroin crisis in Massachusetts, I didn't get involved in the cannabis legalization because all I kept hearing was it's a gateway. And personally, I think that risky behavior is a gateway. Whether Whatever risky behavior you're doing, it just opens the doors for you to continue on. So I didn't want that messaging to kind of for what was going on. And I just thought it was the responsible thing to, to keep myself out of it. But at the end of the day, when you're talking to public health officials and they're saying, right, but 
We don't know 10 years down the road, will you get cancer? We don't know 10 years down the road, what it will do to brain cells. We don't know 10 years down the road, what it will do. And those questions, if we had had research at the federal level, might have been answered. So people feel more comfortable with the fact that it's a consumer choice. You choose to use it or you choose not to. Same thing with cigarettes, same thing with tobacco, same thing with alcohol, anything. Same thing with, with fast food, same thing with yeah. you know foods that aren't healthy for you. It's it's a choice and we need to we need to do that. When I got into the Cannabis Commission, I had said to the governor, you know, I have a track record. I have voted on no trans fat. I have voted on all these things. And that's going to follow me. And he was like, okay, like that, do what you have to do. And so as we started writing these rules, I kept saying to people, you know, the guy that's using it today, oh girl, I don't want to discriminate, but they've been going to the person that they've been going to for so many years. They're not going to just up and change and say, this is great. I get to pay taxes and and it's going to cost me X amount of dollars. Right. But we also have this population that have never, never consumed and are thinking, hmm, maybe this will help with my sleeping issue. Maybe this will help me with a cancer diagnosis. And they don't want to go through the medical program because mm-hmm. everyone's afraid to have their name on a list, right? Yep. Because my life has been so public for so long, I'm on probably every list that I don't want to be on. Right? So I totally understand it. But at the same time, you have to write rules for people that may choose to do this. I mean, it's really hard to say this, but your future consumers aren't even of legal age yet. Yeah. And so while we're talking about diversion and you don't want this to be diverted to children, you have a population of people who will someday be 21 and who will someday be interested, possibly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to have that mentality also, because you need to understand what is the future of an industry, right? So you're, you're balancing the future of an industry versus, you know, public health of children and public health of, of adults and, and people who choose. So we have all these education materials around, we have all these things around. Um, mm-hmm. And the one thing that I was a really big proponent of is that we had to put the helpline for substance abuse on materials because mm-hmm. you never know who's going to have a problem or who's looking for help and you just want it to be there. So you're sort of writing for two different populations, the current population, the population of what could be, um, and how do you balance that? But it's not sexy. It's not exciting and nobody wants to talk about it. And so that's what makes it hard. You get criticized for it, but at the same time, regulators are put there to do what they think is best you know, for the industry in their state through government work. And, and I think that's really where it comes down to like what you said, Washington has had to change their rules all the time. There's a balance you have to have with changing the rules to accommodate for the growing industry or yeah. changing the rules because you messed up. And it's Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a very, very <laughs> big difference. Cause it's like, Tied to every rule change, there's somebody or families impacted, both from the people who are operating who have to abide by those rules and both from the end consumer. And so, yeah, it's just like you realize, I mean, talking with you, I just realized like how deep and complex regulation, I mean, I've always known regulation is deep and complex, but how ultimately, I mean, even just if you went down the route of like those future consumers, well, okay, that spawns out to, okay, well, what type of educational programs do they have in school? And when do they start having them in school? 
to, you know, substance right. abuse. Like it's just, it's, it's wild. How did you. And, it, and it's funny though, because if you're listening to teenagers, which I'm not sure yeah. a lot of people do, at least in, in where I live, they've said, we're done with the pregnancy conversations. Like we're done with a don't smoke, don't have sex, don't, don't get pregnant at a young age. They're mm-hmm. now, they're now moving on. They're more worried about what is, you know, drug abuse education or substance abuse education. They're worried about mental health of their friends. They're noticing things that happen. So they're sort of telling us, all right, the 1950s, don't have sex, don't get pregnant, don't smoke. It's over. Like this is 2023. We now have evolved. Why does my friend get so anxious? She can't leave the house. Why does my friend feel the need to use something to make things better? Like they're, they're paying attention. Like, and they're the future adults, right? It's called an emerging adult. That's what their age group is. Um, That's where you capitalize on that. And this isn't like the drugs are bad. I mean, this is a simple. And the one thing I learned when I was working through the opiate addiction is that if you don't get them by fourth grade, you don't Mm -hmm. get them in terms of education. So what are you telling your fourth grader? You tell your fourth grader, don't share medicine that comes in a bottle with someone else's name on it. Simple. You're not talking about heroin. You're not talking about opiates. You're not talking about cannabis. Don't share something that doesn't have your name on it. That's such, I mean, it's the process. You can't, you can't share prescriptions, but if you're teaching your fourth (laughs) grader, don't let them give you their ibuprofen or whatever the heck someone's it has in the house. That's a simple education level that then grows in having conversations of, all right, you know, because I had, when cannabis was legalized here, I had parents come to me and said, I told my kid not to take anything from a kid in the cafeteria unless it was in a package because everyone was worried about the copycats of the edibles being in like the Chips Ahoy bag. Mm. And so parents were like, well, how else do I say it? Yeah. Well, there are better ways than that, but okay, (laughs) we're going to go that way. <laughs> so how did it work? I'm I'm so curious. Like with just the education of consumers, is that that like would parent would you would the state hold meetings and parents would come, or is it kind of pushed down to the school and the school holds meetings? Like how does the system work? Well, there's there's multiple systems. There are some school mm. systems that will do drug education. They may add this to it. The one thing mm. that we promoted from the CC, the Cannabis Control Commission, was this: add this to the conversation you're already having. Add this to the tobacco conversation. Add this to the alcohol conversation. Um, don't make it sim- st- don't make it different. Like don't make it its own thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a campaign here called More About Marijuana in the in the um, website is called moreaboutmarijuana.org. And so there were two schools of thought in the beginning. One, we did a campaign that said know the law. Here's what was passed because a lot of people were really concerned about the fact that they didn't know what was passed. And second was how to talk to your kids. And so what we did was it was very tone neutral. It was very, you know, dense with detail, with like facts and details. There wasn't really any opinions put into it, except for the fact that we had to choose the character that people were looking at. Um, <laughs> we, we found through our focus groups that people wanted to look at a cartoon character, not as a part, not a person because they didn't want to feel preached to, but if the cartoon character was saying it, then, it, you know, it's something different. People take it different. Um, and we had palm cards made. And so that these little cards and anyone in Massachusetts can go on the clearinghouse website through the department of public health and order these informational cards the boards of health can take them. Schools can have them. Parent groups can have them. And people, people were interested because we ran out. 
I think two or three times we had to have more printed. And so it was just trying to educate of, okay, this is what this is. And then at the point of sale, there's an education piece. So if someone's going yeah. to the dispensary, there's an education piece. Um, there was never a coordination between what the schools were saying versus what our campaign was versus what yeah. the birds say. It was more of we're here as a resources. Everyone's kind of staying in their lane and everyone's doing what they, they need to do. But we found through, you got to love data analytics. Yeah. We found through like the Google clicks, parents mm-hmm. were looking at what is it? What does it look like? You know, and so people were on the website learning something that they probably didn't know. Um, And that was kind of a big deal. Like that was really important because we wanted people to be able to understand this is what this looks like. And this is, you know, here's our warning label, which I love the international, I love the national warning labels because they're not cohesive. Like no one has the same label. No, that's annoying. (laughs) I mean, the East Coast is starting to have, we're all starting to use the same label, but like Colorado's is like a diamond and ours is a triangle. So yeah, I I love when they say that, you know, our stuff is all the same. It's like, well, it's really not, but okay. It's like kind of recognizable though. You know, it's a warning. It's, it's not, it's not completely there, but it's interesting because, you know, this is a business podcast. And I think that so often I hear, you know, with the illicit market, what do businesses do? Okay. Well, education is such a powerful move, especially like I'm like, as a business owner in cannabis, you don't have much opportunity to run Facebook ads. It's illegal or any of the traditional marketing. And my thought is, why wouldn't you want to lead with education just like the state of Massachusetts did and really educate people about the benefits, about the risks? Because to me, that's an opportunity to get people into your doors or build brand awareness while still doing a better a better thing for the entire community. Well, it's what funny are your you thoughts? Have you seen this? Yeah, tell me. Like the first weeks in, off, in, in office, I left office to do this, but the, the first weeks in our positions at the Cannabis Commission, we were literally calling other states and saying, what did you do wrong? Okay. What did you do mm. wrong? We just need the base and, and we'll come back to you later and we'll be close. Like we'll be friends. The reality was Colorado said to me, if you don't get your public awareness campaign out first, you could lose people. So it's, it's more about education, get your campaign, get, it's going to be a pain to create while you're doing regs, but you've got to get that, that education piece out and it's got to be early. And I think that was one of the successes we had is that we focused on it. The the legislature, you know, it was, it was interesting. The governor had appointed me to this job. And then I turned around and said, oh, by the way, I need a couple million dollars because we need to do an education campaign. So thanks for the job, but thank you. now it's going to cost you. <laughs> and yeah. In the, we were very fortunate. The legislature gave us, you know, two million then to start it. Then we got a million. Then we got a million, and we got to continue on with it. And that just goes to show the partnerships. I mean, we wanted to do it responsibly. Um, were there people thinking that we were, you know, trying to push people off? Absolutely. But my goal was that if a parent had a question, that was the answer. They could find the answer, and we didn't want to not have that education available. And then when we had a, a requirement that you needed to have an insert at the point of sale and say, hey, this is intoxicating. This is what's happening. Um, it really was a responsibility thing. It was nothing to do with anything else because all I could think of was the person walking in for the first time, yep. not knowing A, what to do, the B, what the products are, or C, how it's going to really affect them, but then walking away and saying, all right, I got this piece of paper that can mm-hmm. tell me 
be careful if it's an edible, it'll take an hour, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, be careful if it's this. And that's it. But the yeah. same way you get at the pharmacy when you, you get random medicine. I mean, you know, I'm an they like sit with I, you. I they with, walk with, you. yeah, yeah. you get that stupid insert. No one reads, but it's there. Like it's there if you need it. Right. So even the inhalers that I've been using forever, cause I have asthma come with the same information. And you know what? You may be feeling sicker at one point you want to read it or not, yeah. but there's an option and it's an option for education. And so we try to really maintain that as just an educational tool. Um, the hard part is keeping it very neutral. People want neutral information. They don't want your opinion. Um, mm. It was funny when I first got appointed, people thought they knew my opinion because mm. I voted no on the question. And it was like, well, you really have no idea what I'm thinking. Mm. You know, you know, I signed a pledge because I didn't like the question. Like that was it. Like, move on. <laughs> yeah. I've signed a million pledges nobody cares about. So um, it's trying to keep that balance of educating the public. Because again, it can't go to the feds. No, there's nothing we're going to get from them. You know, you can, you can go to the think tanks and you can see, okay, here's a one pager on what cannabis is. Okay. That's not helping me much. I need it yeah. in real time. What's here. Can you rely on international studies? Because I know Israel, like Israel has done a ton of studies for a very long time, but is there something that prevents states from using international resources? No, Does that work? Okay. I don't think so at all. I mean, I think for us, I mean, it's funny, we actually have a research component here in Massachusetts. So we have a, uh, the director of research is Dr. Julie Johnson, who comes from Johns Hopkins. Um, that's where she trained. And her directive through the statute, through the law, is to have a research-based or scientifically-based research, right? Mm-hmm. And you can use what is available. Sometimes what happens is people push back to say, well, that's not here. It's mm-hmm. not here. And so you can use it because you can see what the trends are. And I think Amsterdam even was a, a way people were saying, well, this is what the cafes will look like. And now I understand Amsterdam's changing the way that they do it. So even things that have been in place forever are going to, to evolve. And, and I think that's important, but the studies that are out there absolutely can. The issue is that does it fulfill the research mandates that each state has? Like, is it part of what the, the structure is? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dr. Johnson for a couple of years had, we need more information. We need more information. It was about trends, about kids. It was trends about youth. And it's like, we don't have that yet. We're brand new. So sometimes it takes time, but yeah, I mean, research is important. I think all research is important. Um, You just need to pay attention of who it's coming from, not where it's coming from, because everybody likes to have their think tanks. Everyone likes to have their researchers, but at the same time, is it some social media organization or is it like an institution or is it? someone that has some sort of clout or reputation behind them. Yeah. How would you give somebody advice of just like, cause that's such, such a good point of looking at a research study, but also looking objectively at somebody's interests just to make sure that they really are aligned. Like what is the framework that somebody can use just to make sure, you know, as you get, cause we're in an age of getting so much information of like, how do you actually assess it? I think if you look at, you know, what the, if you look at the studies, I mean, you start with the abstract, right? First of all, who's funding it? You got to look at who's funding it. And and it does that align with what you're looking for. Some people are looking, you know, we all know that there's that person that gets sick, that's looking for an answer. 
like they're mm-hmm. looking for the the internet to tell them that they're right. It's the same thing with this. Some people are looking for an answer. And if that's what you're looking for, great. Other times you've got to look at who's funding it. You know, is it a nationally renowned organization? Is it an academic institution? Is it someone that you can rely on for data? Um, or is it someone who's putting something together because they feel like they want to be part of it? And then if you look at the abstract of what they're they're really trying to research, that'll give you a better idea of, you know, what the possible outcomes could be. And I think that's kind of an important piece of it is that you're just using your own ability to look at what you're trying to use as scientifically based data. Yeah. One of the concerns is that we don't have the data yet. You know, in Massachusetts, you know, we are our EMS people, you know, there's a piece on what they call their matrix, which is their run reports. They'll mm-hmm. tell you if they use Narcan, mm-hmm. but there's nothing to say if they think that it was cannabis impairment. Um, and that just comes from lack of data collection. Right. So it's mm-hmm. not it's not anyone's fault. It's just we went through a time when Narcan was being used and we needed to know um, you got to start looking at your government systems and what data they're collecting. I mean, when you go to the emergency room, are they checking off, you know, cannabis induced, you know, intoxication Psychosis or yeah, like you don't know what they're doing. And And it was interesting because. I wanted to know, you know, how many people are calling 911? How are our EMS people being overutilized for something that nothing that they can do about, right? So you get scared, you call 911 and then they come. Well, what happens from that? Are you just going to the hospital to like kind of wait off? Are you getting water? Are you like they're not going to give you anything to change it, right? So it's things like that. Are our hospitals collecting data? Are our EMS people collecting data? Are our doctors collecting data? And when people say collecting data, they get scared. It's like, we don't care who you are. I would like to know that you're a 47-year-old female, right? Mm -hmm. I'd like to know your demographics, but I'm not worried about you as a person. I just want to know because it's going to help. And so that's the piece that I think comes next. That doesn't come with legalization. That is the the people in the, the regulators and them saying, okay, well, how do we collect the data we're asking them to use? Oh, yeah, it's not done yet. So we need to collect it and then it won't be good for five years. So like, it's, it's a process. It is such a process. Well, I'm wondering, so you've got the experience of, you know, it's 2017, right? That it kind of September, 2017 of when you jumped in and now we're in 2023. Having looked at other states that maybe were a few years ahead, what is that timeline? Like if we could just like paint it. So the moment that something passes to getting, you know, the first licenses, like how does that whole horizon look and where would we expect to be, you know, in, in the first five years and then that, that second five years. So that decade. Well, I can say with certainty that the legislature has great intents, right? So their, their intention is really good. They want to get this done as quickly as, as the public would like them to. But at the same time, if you're choosing like Massachusetts did to create a whole new agency, that needs to be part of the conversation because I will never forget um, the day I left my Senate office, which was a beautiful office with a staff of five and, you know, three office suite. I had two offices in the district to go to my cubicle with no support staff. Like, I'm not a lawyer. We had to contract out with a lawyer to write my part of the regs because I just am not a lawyer. I don't have that legal training. It was really Commissioner Doyle, Commissioner McBride, um, who like drove the process because they were 
uh, Commissioner, former Commissioner Doyle wrote the uh, medical regs and Commissioner McBride had been at the AG's office. So they'd been involved in, in that forever. We had no support systems to start and we were supposed to know the subject matter. And so you really have to dig deep down. We relied a lot on the other states. And like I said, there were only like six or seven ahead of us. There wasn't a lot to go on. Um, and so from there, you, we were like, okay, how do we open? How do we make sure that they pass, um, you know, sort of the, the sniff test? How do we make sure that these people can operate, that they're okay and all this stuff? Oh, I should start by saying Massachusetts is the only cannabis commission in the country, I think, that has five prescriptive commissioners. Each one of us oh. had to have a specific background. So I was the public health appointee. Commissioner Doyle was the regulatory appointee. Commissioner McBride was the public health appointee. Commissioner Title was the social justice appointee. And Commissioner Hoffman was the finance appointee. Wow. Each one of those categories has to be what those people sitting in those seats are. So the person that took my seat when I left is a public health appointee. They have to have mm -hmm. a public health background. And I don't think it's like that anywhere else in the country. Mm -hmm. So having that, we all sort of divided up and went in our lanes and sort of did the regs that came under our umbrellas and came back and had the discussions. And I think from there, you say, okay, we're going to open as soon as we can. But by the way, as we're writing this, we don't have anyone to read the applications. Mm -hmm. We have to hire someone to read the application. So, okay, we need to build a licensing team. But then wait a minute, we don't have anyone who's going to inspect. So we have to build an enforcement team as we're writing the regs, as we don't even have an HR director. And I think for a lot of places that create their own agency, that's what you have. It's like organized chaos is what we yeah. have, is what I call it. Um, and then we weren't thinking get it open tomorrow. We were thinking, how quickly can you read the license? How quickly can we have a public meeting? How quickly can the person be ready to go? And so it took <clears throat> a year and two months for someone to open from the time we were appointed, which I don't think is a long time. Um, the mm -hmm. people in the industry say we took too long. Well, I don't know how much faster you wanted it to happen. Um, overnight, if overnight. No like if, if there's no rules, it can't <laughs> happen. If there's no... So it, it really comes down to whether you have the support systems or not, because if you don't, yeah. then you're struggling like we were. I mean, I'll never forget we were in our second office because we moved three times, we moved twice. And I was like, where did you come from? Like, who hired you? And, and there were just these people around all of a sudden because we finally had HR and I was like, yeah. nice to meet you. Like, yeah, okay, so we're going to do Why? this. Yeah. <laughs> and And that's why, you know, you have to, pay attention because it's just everything at once. It's everything. At the same time we were doing that, we also had to ask for more money in the budget because we were only a supplemental appropriation. They didn't give us a full year's worth of money. So we were trying to do all these things and, and it's hard and people on the outside don't see that. That's what's really interesting. No, I, I, and I'm, that's why I'm so glad that you're on is like to kind of give that behind the scenes look, because to me, what I hear is like, wow, you're like a startup business that's scaling so rapidly, like, and then you've lost funding and you need to go ask for more. And that's like, you have to have a really smart strategy and organized chaos. Like that's a, a really brilliant way to put it. And 
I mean, I look at some states, it's taken a lot longer than a year and two months and a lot more hiccups. So I'd say from your experience, okay, so that's like a year and a half, you know, after appointee. And then what were the major milestones of growth that you saw before you transitioned to your new position? Like what were those things you saw? I think one is that we had a a staff that was going to function. I think that Mm. we finally had licensing and enforcement and we had the attorneys and we had all these people in place who could then facilitate the opening of businesses, right? At the level that they wanted. Um, then I think we had the opening and, you know, they were on two ends of the state. So it wasn't exactly like it was in the same part of the state. Personally, I love that it was in Boston. I think it was important to, to move beyond the Boston, you know, kind of bubble is what we used to call it in the legislature. Um, coming from where I live out, in, you know, in Lemonster, we used to call us like the redheaded stepchild to Boston. Like you know, oh, okay. everyone inside this bubble gets paid attention to everybody outside. Just you have to fight for it. Yeah. So the fact that one was in Northampton, which was sort of Western Mass, and you had one that was in Leicester, which is right outside of Worcester, I think was a really a big thing. Uh, I think our public awareness campaign coming online was huge because that, again, showed our commitment to education and showed a commitment to education in a responsible way. It wasn't like one of those scare tactics. It wasn't mm-hmm. anything that had to do with it. And then I think because we got the first round of regs done and we were starting to move on to our second because we knew that we were going to have to do more reg changes because we didn't know what we didn't know back then, right? You yeah. just don't know what's not there. And so we didn't have the ability to prepare for these jobs. I mean, when I tell you that I was called in August of 17 to be appointed for September 1st of 17, that's not a long time to do anything. Um, and, and I'll tell you, working through the criticisms, I think the five of us, the initial five of us commissioners, we did a good job. Like we weathered a lot of storms. We did a lot of things we had to do. Um, and we set the tone and set the, the foundation for the next five commissioners that are that were coming on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because in Massachusetts, you only allowed two terms and then you term out, there will be a continual change in commissioners um, at least every 10 years, maybe every five. Wow. And so that's another you know milestone is that people aren't sitting there for 20 years. You, you can't do that. We don't have the ability to do that. I like that. I like and then that. in and Massachusetts... Then- we just passed the first bill in five years. Like they just passed the first major bill, major cannabis bill in five years. So it shows the growth that's happened. It shows, and, and I'm also a big proponent of the fact that if you're going to pass a bill, as even as big as legalization, you need to leave it for a year. Like you need to let it sit and you need to let it work and not mm-hmm. say six months in, well, this didn't do what we wanted. Well, nothing yes. does six months in. So I think we've Give done a, we've done a good job. If you ask people on the outside, they may say the opposite. (laughs) Well, maybe we'll have to have people ask those questions to ask a regulator. What's your new role? What made you want to transition into something new beyond the private side? Like, what do you do here? So I'm the director of regulatory policy at Vicente. And um, what I do is I do a lot of government interactions. Um, I help our clients navigate some of the government issues. Uh, I really, I focus on building relationships across the country because there is a lot to be learned from each of us, right? You know, I see people that have just been appointed to either executive director jobs or commissioner jobs. And, and I say to them, I feel for you. Like, I really feel for you because you're going into a world that is just, it's heightened on so many levels, 
right? You have the, the public side where it's being driven by, you know, we want policy changes and, and this is a, you know, an activism type thing to the government saying, what the heck are we doing? Like, how are we doing this? And if you look at some of the headlines, you even today, you still hear, we can't have those on our streets. Mm. And I'm trying to say, but they are. And so why yeah. wouldn't you want it to be legal and tested? And, you know, again, I come from the, the substance abuse world. And so things are laced. Things are laced because people on the street think if you get a, a stronger high or a bigger high, then, then it's better. That's not safe. You, you don't know what pesticides are in there. You don't know what's going on. So that the testing piece of it is really crucial. Um, and I think that, you know, my job now is that I get to interact with people even beyond what I did. Uh, because as a commissioner, we didn't have camera. Camera started I think two years into when I was at the commission, we didn't have the benefit of having other regulators. It was more of my colleagues and I were calling other states saying, Hey, we're in your shoes now. Like, can you help us out a little bit? Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for the genuine interest in sharing information, this country would not have been able to do this state by state. I mean, I give, I give regulators so much credit because when, when we used to call, they would answer. And they'd be say, what do you need? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like, what do you want? <laughs> um, and so now I get to do this on the, on the private side, um, wow. obviously. And it's unique because I understand the public side, what the mm-hmm. government concerns are going to be, but also what the industry concerns are going to be. So I'm sort of that conduit that can say town hall's not going to go for that. Like that's not mm-hmm. going to happen at the mom's group. You know, that meets every Tuesday. Um, but at the same time, this is a business and an industry that you need to help flourish and, and help really continue and succeed. Um, the one thing I will say is that when I first went to the Cannabis Commission, mm-hmm. some of the people in the substance abuse world said to me, you switch sides. Oh, that's How so interesting. And I said to them, how is it switching sides if my job is to make sure people are safe the same way I did with the laws that I helped write and pass to keep people safe from, from, you know, opiates and and heroin. This is just a different level. And they were like, you switch sides. And, And that's when it finally got to me that, okay, we need a lot of education. We need a lot of things that happening. This is very triggering for some people. Like, you know, if their friends are overusing or if something's happening, Um, And so in the private sector, I can, when there's concerns about involvement with the communities, Mm -hmm. I can say, well, because someone got to them and something happened Mm -hmm. Uh, and it happened when I was at a community meeting, I know a meeting of a board of health in a community and they were trying to ban something. And I said, well, someone either got a product illegally and that Mm -hmm. affected something, or there's another reason. And it came down to a kid who was underage, got hold of a product and so the board was trying to be protective and, yeah. and it's like, okay, well, you can't stop commerce because someone gets something illegally. Like that's just, it's like back in the days of prohibition, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And that gets, so, it's a whole different strategy. Like if you're trying to deal with the illicit market, it's a completely different strategy. And, and I will say for, even for our education, mm-hmm. you know, our education program in Massachusetts, we got kicked off Facebook. We had to, you know, <laughs> we had to appeal with Twitter. We had to, wow. because the word cannabis was, or marijuana was in our title. 
Yeah. We were getting kicked off the same platforms that businesses were getting kicked off of. And I can't tell you the amount of appeals, appeals that the CCC had to do to get our public awareness campaign. Um, and then at one point we were, and this is why the role that I do now is helpful because when people say, well, they haven't gotten back to me in, in three weeks. And I say, well, tell them to check their spam folder because a lot of governments had cannabis and marijuana as a spam word that it would go to a spam folder and the person would never even get the emails. And because we live in an email world, yeah. everybody assumes it all goes through. That's a good lesson for anybody to learn. Like if you are not getting anything back, just follow up anyway, because you're absolutely right about the spam. Well, we were doing, um, I think we were doing a survey. Mm. And so I started calling my friends in the legislature and I'm like, listen, call your town, call your town manager and see if they even got the email. And some of them had not. And it was like, so we're not being ignored. They just haven't gotten it. But it's, it's incredible. The work I do now helps that interaction because there has been struggles between industry and government, right? So industry is like, let us open, let us open. Government is like, we need to be careful. We need to pay attention. And again, you don't have the benefit of the knowledge that the feds would have on any Mm -hmm. given situation and take politics out of it. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican. I don't care if you like the president or you don't. There's a, there is a tension between industry and government. And so Mm -hmm. I can help break that down understanding, you know, what government's concerned about and how that works. I mean, that's massive value because I feel like the only way up and forward is to do something like this. Like things have to change, not only in Massachusetts. I mean, Massachusetts seems actually pretty great, but in a lot of other states and even going forward of just the way that we do things until we get federal support. But it seems like it's such a long time, which which brings me to the speed round. Um if you had to give one piece of advice to a business listening, what would you say? Build a relationship with your enforcement team. Don't be so afraid to talk to them because your compliance of their rules is what keeps you open. That's a, that's excellent. What is one thing that you learned when you just got started working in the cannabis industry? That I knew nothing about cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> To the point that, and my friends will tell you, I cannot even grow an aloe plant. Like that's just not my, not my thing. My horticulture skills went away when my grandmother passed away, but this one awesome student that I had met gave me this insight into this cannabis encyclopedia. So I could finally learn like all the parts of the plant and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what I didn't know. I wasn't in that world. Well, it's so complex. Even being in that world, you might know just a very small bit of it. And it's like 483 molecules. Like we only know really a few of them. It's just. I'm telling you, my whole friend set, like my whole family and friend set, they learned so much that it's like a NASA operation to run. (laughs) Because every time I would come out of the cultivation center, I would be like, legit, it doesn't take this to launch a shuttle. Like it's just (laughs) the way that they're inputting like nutrients and this and that and people my friends would listen to me like we cannot believe you're doing this like how did you get here (laughs) (laughs) I love it you kill your aloe plant I'm like well luckily I don't have to work in a cultivation center ever (laughs) exactly exactly um when do you think cannabis will be federally legal no idea I think I love my friends in government I love my friends in congress I don't think the politics of congress will get out of the way soon enough mm-hmm. for this to get done. And I don't think it has anything to do with cannabis. I think it has everything to do with politics. 
Mm. So frustrating. But I'm hopeful yeah. because my, my congressman, Congressman Jim McGovern is, uh, you know, he's the, the ranking person on rules, the minority person on rules because he's a Democrat uh-huh. and he was the head of rules committee. So I'm hoping that, you know, the work he's done and others have done can really pave the way, but I'm not, I'm not hopeful yeah. yet. Any ideas on at least like IRC 280E or banking? Like, is there, because from 280E, nothing can happen unless it gets descheduled or rescheduled to like a three or a four. Yeah. Any ideas? Like, do you think that's just probably going to be the exact same time as federal legalization or? I'm hoping that they change that. I mean, when you've got yeah. 30 plus states that are doing this, you know, there needs to be in how many times we end up on tax reliefs and tax packages yeah. and, you know, relief for families and businesses. These are businesses and they're operating legally in the states. And I think that at some point Congress has to realize that they are also operating legally. And so they deserve to have um, the passage of banking and, and just to allow it all to happen. And at the same time, with that, allowing people to be able to borrow. I mean, I think that, you know, we, God, yeah. and this is a whole conversation for another day, but you want to focus on social equity. People need to have access to cash. Um, and that is one of the things that holds a lot of people back. It holds an everyday person back, let alone yeah. someone trying to get into this industry. Um, and so I, I think at some point Congress has to realize what's going on in the states that they actually represent and that no one's waiting for them. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that, that'll be one of our, our other conversations. Jen, thank you for this like kickoff with uh, behind the scenes with the regulator. I'm so excited to figure out where, where we're going to go. Um, how can people, if people want to ask questions, how can they find They you? can email me. They can call me. Yeah. I can give you, I, you have my information, but we can provide yeah. it. Um, I answer my phone. I always have, that was one of the, the downfalls when I was in office. I'd answer my own phone. Um <laughs> Or they can, they can email me, but yeah, okay. we'll get that information to people. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this, leave us a five-star review. Make sure that you share this episode on your social media and tag us in the Instagram stories. You can find us wherever you go on social media. Just look up Cannabis Business Minds. Have an idea for the show or something that you want to talk about? Shoot us an email at podcast at cannabisbusinessminds.com.